Ah, sweet land of liberty. Our founding fathers not only pledged, but gave their lives, their fortunes, and their sacred honor to obtain our God-given liberty. Now it's our turn. Liberty can only thrive if it's alive in the hearts of a freedom-loving people. I'm Dan Matthews, and I'm pleased to welcome you to Freedom's Ring. Here's our host and constitutional lawyer and minister, Alan Reinock. Welcome to Freedom's Ring. Just yesterday, as we're sitting here in the studio, the U.S. Supreme Court announced what some of us believe is an historic decision regarding direct tax dollar aid to a church for the very first time. And here to talk about this case and its significance, uh, my good friend and colleague, President of the Northwest Religious Liberty Association, Greg Hamilton. Greg, hey. welcome back to Freedom's Ring. Thanks so much. Good to be here. So, you know, my initial read of the media coverage and all the organizations uh, touting this case is everybody thinks it's a great victory for religious freedom. But uh, you and I aren't so sure. Why not? Well, the context of the case involves um, surfacing uh, the playground and also uh, providing safe playground equipment. Um, and, you know, it's funny. I used to think that churches relied on private donations for such equipment and, and uh, operations. But uh, for some reason now, churches are appealing to the state, uh, which is rather unusual. Uh, Ilya Shapiro who's a constitutional scholar or a senior fellow in constitutional studies at the Cato Institute and editor-in-chief of the Cato Supreme Court Review, wrote an article, opinion piece, in CNN uh, online this morning. He says, Today's decision makes clear that Trinity Lutheran's playground improvement is no different than the government provision of police or fire protection to houses of worship and other religious institutions. And he goes on and he says, and it's quite unlike taxpayer funding of religious instruction or the parade of horribles raised by Trinity Lutheran's opponents, which no longer include the state of Missouri, whose new administration changed its policy. Now, you know, I'm amazed this guy even calls himself a constitutional scholar. I mean, the problem I have with constitutional scholars or people who don't know history is they don't realize how significant this is. They pass it off as nothing. I mean, what this has done is opened up the gates for a feeding frenzy uh, to for churches now to all bid for government funding of whatever projects they want. For the first time in U.S. history since prior to the uh, to the um, U.S. Constitution, um, this this is this is incredible, and people don't understand the historical nature of it, and really what the Constitutional Founders intended. We've so, gone completely right. astray. So one of my friends, and I was astounded because she's an attorney who litigates Establishment Clause cases and believes in the separation of church and state, and on my Facebook page she took the same position. Why? She asked me the question, why is giving cash to a church to essentially, uh, you know, refurbish its preschool playground surface, you know, buy rubber tires to put rubber mats down. Why is that any different from police and fire service? And I think the, the clear answer is uh, the police and fire aren't giving cash to the church. Right. And when you give cash to the church, yes. uh, who knows how the church is going to spend it, which means that the government has an obligation to audit the church books. I don't want Uncle Sam coming in and auditing my church books. Do you? 
Well, it's a safety and health welfare benefit that's provided to churches. I mean, that's, that's the thing with police and fire. I mean, that to me is just basic common sense. That's more rational, but the, the direct funding of churches for any incidental thing that they want um, uh, is, is problematic. Now, I know the church cited, well, well safety... Put this, put this in historical context, Greg. Safety and health of the children, that's really stretching it. Put it in historical context, because this is, to my knowledge, and I think yours as well, the very first time that the Supreme Court has approved cash going directly to a church. Vouchers is not quite the same. You know, some of these other cases involving some form of aid to religious schools, uh, materials, etc., they're all a little different. This is the first time we're seeing cash. Put this in historical perspective for us. Uh, yeah, I, if you don't mind, I'd like to deal with the political perspective first, then the historical, and I'll tell you why. Um, the political is very apparent. Liberals are going to love this because now, you know, the more religious institutions actually receive governmental money, and I think this is one of the reasons why Breyer, Stephen Breyer and, and Justice Elena Kagan went along with this to create a 7-2 vote on the court uh, in the Trinity case, is that it creates an opportunity for more federal regulation of uh, religious institutions and, and churches and schools. And that, that becomes, in my opinion, a problem. And then conservatives, on the other hand, love, they've been begging for the floodgates to be open. They would love to return back to the days where um, money had influence and the church could then direct the affairs of state. They say, hey, we're receiving this money, we now have a place at the table, and so on and so forth. Okay, so that's the political context, and that actually was the actual context. The political context was actually the context that Thomas Jefferson and James Madison had a problem with Patrick Henry on. Right. Patrick Henry... So hold on one second. I want you to tell that story, but I also want to remind our listeners, as I have many times, that this is a classic example of the golden rule. I mean that other golden rule, he who has the gold makes the rules. And as you've said, right. the liberals like this because the more dependent the churches become on government funds, the more susceptible to regulation and control. Exactly. And they certainly want to do everything they can to control the churches. So this is a win-win for both conservatives and liberals, except for you and me, I guess. Um, because, you know, we really want to adhere to the constitutional intent and, and the main reason why the constitutional founders believed in the constitutional separation of church and state. Patrick Henry came up with what's called a funding assumption bill in 1776, and Jefferson countered with his Virginia Statute of Religious Freedom. And Patrick Henry's funding assumption bill was basically a school choice and school and uh, church choice bill. It was say, basically saying that people could support um, through their taxes the support of their preacher, their church, and their school and teacher, um, and um, you know taxes could still flow to the church of their choice and the school of their choice, essentially. And Jefferson and Madison said, well, the problem with that is that the predominant uh, powerful church, the um, the Anglican Church in Virginia would receive the most funds, and in fact, 
uh, because of their discriminatory approach towards religious minorities, they probably wouldn't get anything. If they did, pretty minimal, and it would be uh, a form of discrimination, and it would create a majoritarian process whereby the majority always rules and wins, and therefore you haven't really erased any religious establishment. It's still an establishment of religion by the state. Well, that's, okay, that that's the Jefferson point. And, the, the, the most basic yeah. concept of a an establishment of religion, which is the kind of, uh, you know, opaque language of the First Amendment, but most basic to that was tax funding. Yep. Now, I'm going to record another show with a Baptist policy analyst who likes this decision, and I'm reminded that the Baptists in Virginia and Massachusetts and elsewhere in colonial days were foremost in insisting that they not be coerced into tax funding even of their own churches, right. that uh, religious funding had to be entirely voluntary. And that was a very important religious principle for Baptists and, and later for many others, including our own Seventh-day Adventist faith. What we're really going back is to a Puritan standard, and one of the things that Alia Shapiro brings up accurately is that the Blaine Amendments, which occurred in the late 1800s, um, basically were an attempt by then-President Grant and then-Senator Blaine to try to forbid all funding of religious and private schools. Their aim really was to prevent Catholic school growth and, and the spread of Catholic schools through uh, public and tax support. So in that sense, they cite that history, and yes, that's inherently discriminatory, but states then went on to, uh, that amendment, by the way, failed at the federal level, but then the states saw it as something really good, and so they all started to develop these restrictions, these strict restrictions on any government money flow to churches and religious institutions. And what's happened here in this decision by the Supreme Court in the Trinity Lutheran case here is that for the first time, a state Blaine Amendment has been abrogated by the federal government. And that's huge because even though they ruled it narrowly to say, well, it's really up to each state to determine what they want to do, okay, that's fine, you know, saying states' rights, fine, whatever. But the point is, is that, and, and so it may not spread far and wide, but then I think, well, wait a minute, do you realize what you guys just did? If the federal government overrules at the state level, you have opened the floodgates. It just says, hey, you know, it doesn't matter if a state opposes. Now churches are going to file suit, and they're going to get what they want based upon the precedent that's been set by the Supreme Court at the federal level. Well, let me suggest, let me suggest a, a, another context for this. In 1990, in the infamous Peyote decision, Employment Division against Smith, the Supreme Court essentially reduced the free exercise clause to an equality provision. Yes. And as long as you couldn't discern some kind of targeting, specific targeting of religious exercise, <laughs> uh, religious exercise enjoyed only the same rights as non-religious. It was, it was an equality provision. Right. What, uh, and, and really made of virtually none effect the free exercise clause. Yeah. Now we have the Supreme Court turning tables and doing the same thing to the establishment clause and saying, eh, this issue of government funding, government support, it's just an equality provision and you have to treat the churches the same as everybody else. Yeah. Um, 
I'm wondering what that means in terms of not just voucher programs, but charter schools. Why, why should charter schools be held to not endorsing and promoting religion? Why can't religious charter schools be funded the well, same as secular ones under this rationale? You just put forward the key term, endorse or endorsement. The whole neutrality doctrine has been just obliterated with this decision. And it means this, the Establishment Clause, when it says Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion, it means that the government, the word respecting is very important there, it means it cannot sanction, support, or endorse religion. Sandra Day O'Connor, former Supreme Court Justice, would have been appalled at this decision because it really neutralizes and does away with the neutrality doctrine, which the endorsement test, which she created, when she came on the Supreme Court, I still think is a very valuable test. This does not pass the smell test. I mean, clearly, this is an endorsement of religion in the name of non-discrimination. Patrick Henry is now winning the argument. Patrick Henry is now defeating Thomas Jefferson and James Madison. The entire constitutional intent of the founders, of which the Virginia Statute of Religious Freedom was the model for the actual intent of the religion clauses of the First Amendment, especially the Establishment Clause, has been now turned on its head. Patrick Henry and his non-preferentialist doctrine, that is, as long as we don't prefer one religion over another, and as long as the money is given in a non-discriminatory way, there is no reason why this shouldn't pass constitutional muster. He is winning the day, and it's, it's been trending this way actually for the last 30 years, but very gradually. Now, the floodgates are totally wide open because now the taxpayer money now goes to the lowest common denominator, the church. Now I'm wondering, when is it going to go next to the individual? That's where, you know, things get ridiculous. A different context I want to put this in, Greg, which is comparing the United States to post-Christian Europe. Because, you know, Christian Europe never disestablished and continued to provide tax support to the churches. And as a result, the churches are empty. Right. And the society is almost devoid of the Spirit of God and the Gospel of Jesus Christ. I would hate to see our nation go the same way. America has never really gone that direction. It's never really followed Europe's path, so. Well, we're about out of time. Our guest today, my good friend and colleague, Greg Hamilton, president of the Northwest Religious Liberty Association. We've been talking about the Trinity Lutheran Church case out of the Supreme Court. Hang on tight, folks. It's going to be an interesting ride. Greg, thanks so much, as always, for being with us on Freedom's Ring today. Thank you. This has been Freedom's Ring. I'm your host, Alan Reinach. Until next week, let freedom ring.